Amen, amen. Well, good morning, Mosaic Church family. It's good to see you, good to sing with you. Man, that song, Joy of the Lord, give me some of that, right? Joy of the Lord, that, that is something that I just would love to give my heart and head and hands on. Um, we're going to continue in a series in the book of Romans, and this morning we're going to be in Romans 7, and so if you want to flip there and get ahead, you can do that. Um, but my name is John. Uh, for some of you that maybe are visiting or new to Mosaic, my name is John, and I'm one of the pastors here and consider it a real honor uh, to be a pastor at Mosaic Church. And I'll just I'll put my cards on the table here. Uh, there are passages I come to as a preacher where I just, I feel like th- there is so much packed in a passage that I'm just never going to be able to preach and measure up and, and get all that is here in this passage into your hearts. Um, and I'm going to preach my guts out. Don't, don't get me wrong. But I'm feeling my, my limitation and my smallness as a finite, broken man. Um, but I just say that to really just highlight this passage uh, because I think it really has some powerful things to say for us. Um, a little bit about kind of where we are in this series as we've marched through Romans, we're kind of multiple semester, multiple years in the book of Romans. And so uh, two themes that we are trying to weave throughout the entire series, uh, because we believe these themes are in the book of Romans, are the realities that God saves and God reigns. That, that represents the two dimensions of the gospel that we find in Romans and really all of Scripture. Um, God saves is that vertical dimension that Jesus has come to save people from sin and death. He has rescued us from a life of sin and brokenness and separation from God. But then the other dimension is the horizontal dimension, that Christ reigns as king over all and over his people, that he is ushering in a new age of goodness, of peace, where there will be no more sadness, be no more pain. Uh, And we are wrapped up in this process of God saving and God reigning and bringing along his plan of redemption. But another thing that we have seen in the book of Romans and in the New Testament is there's some significant tension between different groups. The Jewish Christians, the Gentile Christians, and then there also is a group of uh, of Jews that are trying to corrupt what's happening in the church and corrupt Paul's message of unity. And that is very significant for our passage this morning because our passage this morning is reference to the Mosaic law, the, the core uh, guiding uh, law, God's moral righteous standard for his people. And so in this church that Paul is writing to, you had Jewish Christians. These were Jews that had come to faith in Christ, but they, they were from this whole different religious way under the old covenant. But then you also had Gentile Christians who were just, they were like, hey, I'm coming to the party. I'm in. Paul says, because of Jesus, I can come in. I'm joining. But you had other Judaizers, the Jewish group that was going around trying to say, no, these Gentile Christians, they have to become Jews first in order to be Christians and to have good standing in the church. And Paul came really hard against uh, this, this rebuttal against his teaching. But all throughout this letter, 
Paul has made some controversial claims. He's implied them uh, as he's worked through this letter. They're audacious claims that we don't really, we don't catch because we didn't grow up in a Jewish world, in, in a Jewish religion. But he makes really controversial claims about the Mosaic law. And chapter 7, he is finally getting to the place where he's going to say, this is how I can say the things I've said. Because this is what is true about the law because of what Christ has done. In the Jewish faith, the law was revered. It was God's will. It was a representation of God's righteous moral character. It made a way for Jews to love and honor and worship God, and it kept sin at bay. It kind of locked it up. And if you adhere to the law, you could keep it locked up. But Paul has made some audacious claims. He's, he's been quite a, a, a controversial voice. Chapter 2, he says this, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. Chapter 3, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So controversial in Paul's day. Because the righteousness of God was, it was in the law that you found that. And Paul is saying, no, apart from the law, there is, a, there is a new righteousness, a more sufficient righteousness, a righteousness that actually the law was pointing to. In chapter 5, now the law came in to increase the trespass. So, so audacious and controversial and, and, and so cutting against everything that a Jew had been bred to understand and learn about the law. And in chapter 6, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. And that brings us to chapter 7. He's, he's implied all of these things and now he's going to answer, here's how I can make these statements. And so let's read Romans 7, verses 1 to 6. And at the end of it, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and it's an invitation. I'll invite you to say, thanks be to God. And this is how we can participate together in hearing God's word and participate in worship through the preaching of God's word. Romans 7, 1 to 6. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not a, an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers and sisters, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. 
For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray as we turn to God's word. Father, we need you and Uh, We know that you are offering us your attention, your acceptance, and your affection to us this morning in the person and work of Christ and by the presence of the Spirit. And we ask that you would fill this time with power, with a tenderness of heart, a sensitivity to the Spirit's conviction. Would you... Feed us with truth, that we would have clarity around what is true according to your holy word. And we ask for that in the name of Jesus and the power of the Spirit. Amen. So I want to start today uh, with something a little unconventional. I want to start with an exercise. And please trust me. I need, I need to be trusted here um, because what I want you to do is I want you to evaluate your relationship with God on a scale of 1 to 10, okay? And if you're visiting with us, like, this is a take-home quiz. Like, we're not turning these in, signing, and then we're going to follow up with you and help you on the scale. Like, this is challenge by choice. And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, Again, you're welcome to participate, but you don't have to. But I want you to evaluate your relationship to God on a scale of 1 to 10. 1 being, like, we're not good. We're not on talking terms. 10 being, we're great. Everything's great. I'm really excited to be here. But come up with a number. Commit it to memory, or if you're taking notes, write it down. Now, if you're anything like me, that number which is a number we're probably always clear on where we're at on that scale, always evaluating how our relationship with God is going. If you're anything like me, that number has a lot of influence on your entire life, your devotional life, your vocational life, how you're engaging your work, your relationships. All of your life is impacted by this number of how am I doing with God? And if it's low, you're probably hiding from God. You're running from God. You're trying to just block, like, I don't even want to acknowledge that things between me and God are not going well. And if it's, if it's a high number, like, you're active. You're engaged. You're excited. You, you came in here this morning, and you're like, yes, church, right? But the question that I want to reflect on with you, and bring us through this passage is how did you evaluate your relationship with God? What was the criteria you used to evaluate and come to that number? We all probably have categories that we use. Maybe it's how you feel about God, influenced and shaped maybe by a situation that you're going through or a circumstance or a season of life. Maybe it's something you learned this week about 
God, a theological truth. And, and you, you feel good about your relationship with God. You think good, I guess. You feel like we're getting mixed up here. But that's okay. Because it's all connected. Maybe it's a behavior. Something you're doing that you shouldn't be doing. Or something that you're not doing that you should be doing. All of us have criteria, categories. And all these categories are, are good and right. When we taught on what faith is, we talked about it through head, heart, hands. That it involves all of our lives, all of our persons. That it is an agreement on belief. That it is worship from the heart. And it is allegiance with our hands. But how did you evaluate your relationship with God? How do you evaluate your relationship with God? Paul is going to help us. The Bible helps us, but Paul in this passage is going to help us because what Paul helps us understand is how to think, feel, and act with our relationship with God. How to understand our relationship with God. And he gives three guiding principles that shape the way we think, feel, and act in relationship to God. The first principle is that you have a new relationship with the law. It's really the heart of this passage. In chapter 7, Paul is beginning to address this hot topic, right? If you remember in youth ministry, hot topic? Like that was like when you talked about the thing that no one wanted to talk about? That, that's what he's doing here in chapter 7. He's getting to the hot topic, the controversial statements he's made. And he introduces it by saying, do you not know, brothers? You know this. You know that the law is binding on a person as, only as long as he lives. Um, this word binding really has this idea of lord, of ruler, of authority. And what Paul is trying to get at to build his argument that he's making in this passage is to say, you guys know you know that we believe that the law is an authority. It is ruler over us only as long as we're alive. And he uses an illustration from marriage to say that a woman, a wife is free to remarry if her husband dies. If he dies, the, the law, she is released from the law. And he gets to his main point in verse 4, and he says, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. He says it again in verse 6, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. You think of, I don't know if anyone in here is a fisherman, catch and release, right? You, you work on catching the fish, and then you unhook it, and you, you release it, unless I guess you're going to eat it. But that's the idea that Paul is saying. You've been released from the law. You've been set free because you've died to it in Christ. But what does this mean? Died to the law. What Paul is, is really trying to help us understand here is that we have died to the power of the law. That's tied to the authority 
the, the dominating authority that the law had. Condemnation, the verdict of punishment, guilt. And in chapter 6, Paul had really drove in on this idea that, that sin no longer has power over believers. And in, in chapter 7, what Paul is trying to get at is he's saying the law no longer has power over believers. And, and we, we feel this as Christians. We feel this in the Christian life. We may believe that we are free from the power of sin. But then when we come to the Bible, when we come to God's holy moral standard, and we see that we don't measure up, we get stuck, we get entangled in a swamp of condemnation and toxic shame. And we begin to believe, if I, if I don't measure up, if, if I can't do this, and, and the person next to me can, there must be something wrong with me. And we get tangled up in this lie of condemnation and toxic shame. And this causes sin to abound. And this is what Paul, in verse 5, he's trying to get at this idea. He's talking about pre-conversion, before faith in Christ. He says, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. He's, he's speaking to the pathology of sin. The curse of sin is this move towards breaking free of God. And sin is so parasitic and so deceptive that it can take something good like the law and stir up more sin. And this is true of unbelievers, but it also is a temptation that we face in our own faith where we can look to the law and sin is stirred up. Sin's like, ha-ha, I'm going to make this a means of accomplishing sin. It happened to the Pharisees as they took God's law and used it as a way to judge others. It can ha happen when we gossip. It creates disunity. It's, it's part of that power that Paul is saying we've died through. And so it's not just that this can happen, but what Paul is saying to the believer is he's saying you've died from the, the enslavement of this always happening. That in Christ and by the Spirit, you can break free of that and come to the law as you are ought to come to as a Christian. But this lie of condemnation can be crushing in the Christian life. This lie of condemnation, it says, it, it may have different language in your own head, but the idea is God's going to get me. God's going to punish me because of what I'm doing or what I'm not doing. God's going to strike me with a punishment and, and discipline because of what I did here or how I did here. We all know what this feels like. It's mixed in with fear and with toxic shame. It's fear that our future with God could be impacted and corrupted by what we're doing right now. 
It's the belief that there is something wrong with me. God made a mistake when he created me. God must have made a mistake when he saved me because I'm, I can't do this. And Paul says in Romans 7, you have been released from condemnation. You've been set free like a fish back in the water. Christ has taken the punishment for sin on his shoulders so you don't have to. We, we deserved punishment, but Christ died. So we don't have to live under the, the pressure and the dominating, crushing weight of condemnation. This changes the way that you probably would answer the evaluation question, right? It's, it's beginning to change how we're thinking about how is my relationship with God. Oh, if you're talking about condemnation probably knocked me down two points. But I think part of the problem that we face is condemnation is often confused with conviction. Conviction is something altogether different than condemnation. Conviction is the prompting of the spirit to repentance and righteousness within the safety of God's love. Within the safety of the Father's loving embrace. Conviction is that that push, that nudge towards Jesus for the sake of his glory, but our acceptance is not in the balance. It's not a life or death decision. Condemnation says, if you don't choose this the right way right now, it's over. God won't love you. God won't accept you. And your future with God is hanging in the balance. This is not the gospel. You have been released from condemnation. You have died to the law. And that changes everything about the way we think about and evaluate our relationship with God. But he has another guiding principle. You have a new relationship with the real Jesus. We see this in verse 4. He says, you have died to the law so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. You've been released from the power of the law so that you can belong to Jesus. Your, your freedom in the gospel has a purpose. It is belonging. It is connection. It is a relationship with the Lord. The law, we learn from the Bible that the law served as like a surrogate Lord. You know the idea of a surrogate mother? The law was like a surrogate Lord. But when Christ arrived, he said, I'll take that back. I'll take my lordship and I will sit on my throne and reign over my people with the reality of, I, I want to see righteousness. I want to see them repenting and growing in the Lord, but I'm also going to empower them to do it. I'm also going to accept them when they fail. Something we tell our kids often is, hey, we love you when you make 
the right decision and when you make the wrong decision. Because we need to hear that. We need to know that. And all too often, we, we sit in the lie of condemnation. And we believe, if I make the wrong decision here, my security in the gospel could be impacted. Maybe not instantaneously, but down the road. If I continue in this, I don't know. But what Paul is helping us understand is that the Christian has a new relationship with God that is free of condemnation and is built on the idea of belonging. That's our, our slogan here. You belong here. Because this is the kind of culture that Jesus is trying to create in his people. Because this is what the Bible says about our relationship to Jesus. We are united to him. We belong to him. We are his. He says at one point that, that we are in his hands and no one can take us from him. And that he will raise us up on the last day. For all who have put their faith in Jesus, he has promised to raise you in the redemption of all things. This, this word belong, it, it actually, the root word is to create, to be born. There's this, this new relationship that's being created for a Christian. And some commentators look at the illustration that Paul uses around marriage and thinks that really what's underneath Paul's word choice here is this reality that God's people have become Jesus' bride, which we see in the book of Revelation and the wedding feast that is to come. You belong to Jesus. Just ponder that. What, what would that change if you really believed that you belong to Jesus? That he's invested in you, no matter what. That he cares for you. What are you going through? What struggles just can't you seem to break free of? What pains you? If you belong to Jesus, he feels those pains. He knows you. He's invested in you. He cares. What would that look like if, if we moved through our lives recognizing this reality? Because it's not just that we belong to Jesus. It's that we belong to the real Jesus. Who is alive. He's not dead. Where, where is he? Jesus Christ is alive, and he is fully God, fully man, and he is reigning over his people and over the earth, and he is working. Do you believe that? Jesus, I mean, Easter's coming up. Jesus is alive. We reflect on the resurrection, but all of the Christian life is a recognition and a celebration that Jesus is alive. He's not dead. And this changes the way that we think about our relationship to God. 
Because if the real Jesus is, is invested in my life, if I belong to the real Jesus, every time I use his name, he's listening. And when I go to him in prayer, I'm not praying to some idea up in the sky, some impersonal deity that I hope, hope is merciful to me. I am praying to a resurrected Christ who has died on a cross to secure your salvation. And if that doesn't scream that he cares and he's invested and he is working in your life, I don't know what does. He's a Lord that has scars on his hands, sitting on the edge of his seat looking at the Father saying, can I go get him? I'm ready. I want to return. I want to bring about the redemption of all things. That's just the way I imagine it. He's on the edge of his seat. Like, let's, let's go. Let's do this. But in the mercy and kindness and patience of God, he waits so that more might come in. But why, why does it feel like we worship a dead Jesus? Why does it feel like that, that truth of him being alive and reigning is just always so far from our daily experience in the Christian life. Life in a fallen world's hard, right? We got rumors of wars. We got another COVID surge all over the news. Some of you are, are suffering in your lives situationally, relationally, extended family, sick kids. Life in a fallen world's hard, and the enemy is cunning. And there are a lot, our, our, our pace of life is so fast. We don't even have time to stop and think about these realities. But the guiding principle that Paul gives is this idea that you have a new relationship with a real Jesus. A.W. Tozer has a quote that I think is helpful on this principle. Um, he says, to most people, God is an inference, not a reality. He is a deduction from evidence which they consider adequate, but he remains personally unknown to the individual. He must be, they say, therefore we believe he is. Others do not even go far as far as this. They know of him by, only by hearsay. Now, personality and fatherhood carry with them the idea of the possibility of personal acquaintance. This is admitted, I say, in theory, but for millions of Christians, nevertheless, God is no more real than he is to the non-Christian. They go through life trying to love an ideal and be loyal to a mere principle. This, this is shocking to us, but it's helpful, it's instructive that you can live a life according to Christian values and Christian teachings, but never personally know Jesus. Or be known by him. And yet, when we read the Bible, we see God meeting personally with person after person after person. God meeting with Abraham and Sarah. God meeting with Moses. And then comes Jesus. 
And in John 1, the, the word that he uses to talk about Jesus taking on flesh is that he pitched a tent and dwelled among us. He came and lived next door. And if that isn't a demonstration of how God desires to personally relate to his people, I don't know what it is. But the truth is that everything and anything is possible in the Christian life because Jesus is alive and you belong to him. And the last guiding principle is that you have a new relationship to your life. He says in verse 4, you've died to the law so that you belong to Jesus in order that we may bear fruit for God. The Christian life has a purpose. The work of God in your heart, mind, and body has a purpose, and that is to bear fruit. To bear witness to the reality that God is real, Jesus is alive, and the Spirit is with us. It's fruit that you can be proud of. It's fruit that, that's worth cultivating and participating with the Spirit to cultivate. What does that fruit look like? Love. Joy. Joy of the Lord. Patience. Peace. Gentleness. Faithfulness, self-control. This is the fruit that God is bearing in your life. And I imagine that there is more fruit for God in your life than you see. Because of the lie of condemnation and because of most of us live in the world of toxic shame, there's probably more fruit in your life than, you're, than you see. And so ask someone about it. When Paul talks about these fruits, he ends it and he says, against such things there is no law. There's, there's nothing working against these fruits. And it's part of our design as image bearers. And the work of the gospel is really guiding us to fulfill God's design and fulfill human flourishing. And there's no law against any of these things because it's the way it's supposed to work. But this is set against the fruit for death that Paul talks about in verse 5. He says, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. What does that fruit look like? Sexual immorality, impurity, idolatry, enmity, strife, jealousy, rage, fits of anger. Divisions, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He's speaking about life in the flesh before the coming of the gospel. And yet we learn that there is a battle within us as Christians. Between the flesh and the spirit. But these things, these, these fruit of the flesh, the Fruit for death. They, they feel like death, right? And some of you may not, you may not have uh, experience outside of the church, outside of Jesus. You grew up in the church. You've, you've been a Christian for your whole life. But I've lived years 
with this kind of fruit. And at, at the beginning, it, it feels like exciting, it's pleasurable, it's, it's fun, it's like, hey, let's have a party. But at a certain point, it takes on a mind of its own. And at a certain point, it begins to crush you. And you live with anger and overwhelming guilt. And that's what it means. Fruit for death is sin will turn on you when you're not looking. But you're in the spirit. And the spirit is working in you. And is moving because of the gospel. And if the hard work for the fruit of death is living with the weight and guilt and shame of the fruit of it, the hard work of fruit for God is cultivating that godliness and holiness in your life. But it's worth the work. It's worth the sweat and tears to cultivate it because you're, you're walking in that fulfilling of the way you've been designed to work. You were always designed for human flourishing. You were always designed to be in fellowship with God and to bring glory to God. And so that fruit is, is, is just aligning with that. Everything is slanted in your favor in that regard. But you might be wondering, why does the fruit in my life look like a bruised banana? Right? You ever, you ever like wake up and you look and you're, man, they're all bruised up. Sometimes, like, I'll, I'll, like, convince myself that I should eat it just for the nutrients, but, like, you take two bites and you're like, oh, that's bad. Like, why does it seem like our fruit is, is rotten? Why, did, why is it so easy to get tangled up in the, uh, the lie of condemnation and get stuck almost like a web? Like, we just get stuck, and then when we squirm, we, we get more stuck. Why does that happen? Let me suggest that the reason why these things happen, the reason why our evaluation of our fruit is a bruised banana and we get stuck in the lie of condemnation is because you're evaluating your relationship based on your own perspective, not God's. And what all of the Bible, what Romans and what Romans 7 is trying to convince us of is your evaluation of your relationship with God should be from God's perspective. Because God's perspective is what is true. Our perspective can be wonky, right? It can be warped. It can be confusing because we get stuck in the game of comparison or we get stuck in our own toxic shame. But essentially what, what Paul is helping us understand is you want a number to evaluate your relationship with God, it's a 10. From God's perspective, your relationship with him is a 10 because you're covered in the blood of Jesus. And there's a whole conversation we could have about what does conviction look like and how, through a filter of a 10, how can you evaluate your spiritual life? But I don't want to have that conversation with you because I know Mosaic Church we have so much opportunity in front of us as a church. We, got, we have big desires for the kingdom of God, but we have to start here. We have to start realizing that our relationship with God is based on what is true. 
And what is true is that you've been released from condemnation. You're safe. You're accepted. You're loved. My, my daughter wrote me a note before I came up here. And she said, no matter what, I love you. And I'm like, oh, if I, I, I love that for my daughter. If I believe that about God, and I just was sitting there just being like, why can't I believe that's true? To believe that God loves us no matter what. How would that change your life? God will do what he wants with our church, with our ministries. There's so much potential. But even if we fail, God's on the other side. He will still use our failure. And he will advance his kingdom. Tim Chester wrote a book, and I'll close with this. Tim Chester wrote a book on growth in the Christian life. A fancy theological term is sanctification. And listen to what he says. He says, I used to think sanctification was a bit like pushing a boulder up a hill. It was hard, slow work, and if you lost concentration, you might find yourself back at the bottom. But it's more like a boulder rolling down a hill. There's something inevitable about it because it's God's work and God always succeeds. Paul closes his passage with this statement, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We have an, a, a helper, someone to help us identify lies of condemnation, remember the reality of a real Jesus dethroned in heaven, invested in our lives, and a power to bear that fruit. And he is the person of the Holy Spirit. And he is available to us. The law demanded obedience, but could never enable it. It's not that God throws out his desire for righteousness in his people, but he also gives us the gift and power so that we can do that. And we can live in the gospel for the sake of human flourishing. So let's do that. Who's in? I'm, I'm in. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you, and we're thankful that you have, have met with us right now. I pray that you would just create an awareness in our minds and hearts as we leave, as we partake in communion. Create an awareness that you're alive, that you're possess power and that you are connected to our lives, our church, our city. Use us, Jesus, for the sake of your glory.
in the goodness of your name in the city of Richardson for the glory of God. And we pray in your name. Amen.